Good morning. Welcome to Celebration Church. Let's all stand together as our campuses join us in Appleton and Stevens Point, waiting for the big music build up there. Uh, and let's uh, recite together the Apostles' Creed. This is our statement of faith. This is who we are and what we believe at Celebration Church. That's right. <clears throat> we believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Good to have you with us today. And again, as well as our campuses in Stevens Point and Appleton, good morning to all of you guys. Trust the service has been meaningful to you so far. Just want to give a quick shout out to Paul and Molly Eidson. They had a little baby. Tobias Wade. Give it up for the baby. <laughs> we like babies. Have lots of babies. Hallelujah. <laughs> so I said, okay. <laughs> he doesn't have to have them. All right. We are in a series called uh, Faith 101, where we are going over the basic fundamental truths of the Christian faith. And while those of us have been Christians for some time, this, this is uh, very fundamental to us. It's important for many of the new people that come to the church to hear these things. Uh, and the Bible talks about that it's good to be reminded of the fundamental truths. Because what happens, we start to drift away because we just don't remember and we just assume everybody knows when in fact they do not know. We've been talking about all kinds of different things. Today we want to ask the question, why must we be saved? What does that mean to be saved? Saved from what? What's wrong with people? Why do we need to be saved? I was over at my son's house last week and his lovely wife, Kirsty, Kirsty, hi. Was telling me about a, a service that they were in while they were on vacation. And this isn't really a slam. I, I didn't hear the whole sermon. It might have ended up in a good place. I don't know. But uh, what she said really struck me because this is something that has said a lot today in some circles where the premise of the message is that we are all basically good. And the pastor apparently said that, yeah, I don't know why these pastors talk about why people are sinners and stuff like that, because we were all made good. We're all basically good. And to, my, to which I responded, whoa, where has this guy gotten his theolog theological studies from? I don't know. Uh, so I thought, let's talk about it, because it is there's nothing more fundamental in our approach to faith than uh, the need to be saved. Are we, in fact, good? How do we find out? Remember what I said last week? Where do we get our standard from? The Bible. If you don't have the Bible, then we just all make this stuff up. Then it's an all free-for-all. We can all uh, philosophize and come up with our alternative. In fact, that's what we see greatly happening today. Even among people who claim to be Christians, they come up with all their different versions of what's right and wrong. We're hearing all this debate lately, which, by the way, listen, I know some people are all freaked out because of the Supreme Court. Check your medication, all right? It'll be fine. God is still on the throne. Amen. Amen. What they decide is what they decide. 
Our standard comes from God's word. Again, the Bible. That's what we live by. And I'm sure God isn't freaking out this morning, nor do I think he was shocked. When they read the ruling, I don't think he went, oh, myself. But we get our standard from the Bible. Without it, listen, if you don't have a standard, then everything's a free-for-all. One of the things that we have in government today, one of the basic services, weights and measures. Saw a truck driving around the other day, weights and measures. What they do is they go into gas stations, and then they put a gallon of gas and see if, in fact, it is a gallon. Because sometimes it's not. Rarely do you get more than a gallon. Usually you get shorted. And they bust these guys, and they enforce this rather strictly. Uh, But without that standard, who's to say what exactly is a gallon? It's kind of a gallon. It's, It's our version of a gallon. So you can see how without standards, there's anarchy. So our standard is the Bible. Let's take a look at what the Bible says. Are people basically good? Well, the answer is no. (laughs) They're not. Let me show you. This is not exhaustive. This is just some of what the Bible says. Talking about our righteousness and how good we can be, Isaiah wrote these words. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts, all the good things we do are like filthy rags, which is in comparison to God. Now, not to gross you out, but the truth of the matter is a lot of translations today translate things that are in the Bible that are very gross and ugh, and they come up with phrases that are not quite so, you know, like we're all so sensitive today or something. But it's the Bible. I don't think God needs our help. The rags he's talking about are menstrual rags. That's something to gross you out, all right? That's what Isaiah said. Our righteousness is compared to that. Ew! We're all shriveled up like a leaf. And like the wind, our sins sweep us away. In Romans, the New Testament, we read these words. There is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Speaking of mankind, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Clearly, from a biblical standpoint, we're not particularly good. All right? Now, the argument apparently that was made was, well, God made men good. Yeah, he did. And then there is called the fall of man. There is nothing more fundamental to the Christian gospel and its biblical truth than the fall of man. In fact, if it wasn't for the fall of man, we wouldn't be here dealing with all of these issues. But because of the fall, it is a dramatic event in the history of our being, the fall of man. People say, well, no, come on, people are basically good in their hearts. If you just follow your heart, just do what's in your heart. I hear Christians say this. I want to slap them. You know, they ask for advice. They say, well, just do what's in your heart. What do you mean what's in my heart? For heaven's sakes, Jesus said this. People talking about their hearts. 
But the things that come out of the person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Apparently, our hearts are not such a good place. In Romans, we read these words. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. Now, when we hear these words, we often think, well, he's talking about a specific group of people, you know, those guys over there. No, he's talking about mankind in general. Wickedness, people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since, that, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. We see it in Nate. What he's talking about is you may not hear the gospel and stuff, but people are aware there's a God. Only in their greatest delusion do people convince themselves there is no God. To go out into uh, nature and see the majesty of God's creation, it screams everywhere. And to say, no, it all just happened by accident, there is no God, is delusional. It's what people do. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became Fools. Now, there were people in Jesus' day that were pretty good people, comparatively speaking. These guys followed the Old Testament law to the letter. We're not just talking the Ten Commandments. The Ten that was just the kickoff, all right? The Old Testament law, they had laws about everything and anything. And then as history went along, they added more to it. It was extremely complicated. These guys not only obeyed and did not offend the Ten Commandments, but all of those commandments. And they followed them to the letter. In fact, they added to the letter of the law and made it even more complicated. And they followed these things. And they celebrated that they were God's chosen people. And we are such good, wonderful people. We're not like all those other people. And don't do these things. And we're so good. And Father Abraham is our father. And we celebrate our father Abraham because we are good people. And Jesus says this to them. Your father Abraham? He said, actually, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's business desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. It is commonly said, trying to show peace and goodwill to all men, that we are all children of God. Well, the truth is, Jesus said, we're all children of the devil, because we have fallen so far from God's glory. In Romans, the fifth chapter, he goes on to explain that, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, this whole thing about Adam falling, Adam and Eve falling into sin in the Garden of Eden, people cannot begin to comprehend what a big stinking deal this was. And while it seems like a very innocuous act, 
eating of a tree that you're not supposed to eat. People think, well, it, that's symbolic. It means something else. It must have did something. One of the common things as you read nitwits on the internet is they'll say, you know, oh, well, the forbidden fruit was sex. They had sex. Now, what wasn't the forbidden fruit? It was God's idea. He said, here, go at it. He wasn't against it. It was a wonderful thing. It wasn't the sin. Well, what other sin was it? They're trying to find, there must be something else. No! It was that simple. It was just a deliberate act. Don't eat of this. You can have anything you want. Just don't touch this one. And they went right to it and grabbed it. It was an absolute insult in the face of God. And it says, so that as just as um, sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this death came to all people because all sin. We are walking in a state of death as human beings because of sin. And by the way, if you doubt the idea of original sin, and some people, oh, we don't believe this. Really, have you had children? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't take, before they can put a sentence together, it's mine. Mine, no, no, mine. And they're bumping each other over the head with bats trying to get something from each other. Where did that come from? Unless you beat the snot out of each other in your house, they didn't learn it from you. And it's universal. It's called sin. It is the sin of selfishness. It's the sin of rebellion. Tell them not to do something and watch them go nuts trying to do it. My gorgeous little granddaughter, that's last night around the boat and just said, don't, don't push those buttons. Well, what do you think she does? <laughs> stop. You know, and then finally stop and then her hands right on it. <laughs> just, I'm not touching them right next to it. <laughs> you know, they, she couldn't stop. Where does this come from? I mean, you see it in your kids. They don't have to be little ones, you know, brothers and sisters, man, to the time they leave the house. <laughs> going at each other. What is that? It's called the nature of sin that is in every man and woman ever born into this earth. Jesus says, or the Bible teaches, that we are all born, stillborn, spiritually speaking. See, we are made in the image of God. God, triune being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are made in the image of God. We actually look like God, according to the Bible. And we are also triune beings. We've got body, soul, and spirit. We've got our body, which you can see. The soul is your emotions, your intellect that you feel. Your spirit, if you have not been, have come to Christ to let him touch you and breathe new life into you, your spirit is dead. Every human being is born into the world, stillborn, spiritually speaking. And every person on the face of the earth, if they're honest for a moment, will tell you they can tell something's wrong. There's something wrong. There's, there's something not right. What is it? What is it? And they try to drown it with drugs or alcohol or sexual immorality or buy things or money, money, money. They think they just have more money. Everything, they're trying, desperately trying to fix this. And no matter how hard they try, they just, they just can't fix it. What's wrong? It's actually what has given birth to so many religions. At least they had the sense to realize it's a God problem. And they've created their own religions, their own way of trying to find God, their own formulas and stuff. But even then, in their greatest struggles, 
still can't fix it. Something wrong. What is it? The Bible teaches that it's sin. We are born, stillborn, spiritually speaking. Your spirit, when you come out of that womb, is dead as a doornail. How do you fix it? Jesus says, if you'll come to him in faith, turn away from your sins, ask him for forgiveness, he will breathe his life into you and you will become born again. That's what it means to be born again. You become spiritually reborn. Wow. And people have varying degrees of the experience that they have when that happens. Some is rather dramatic, some not so much. But if you've been truly born again, you know you've been born again. And many of us sitting here can tell you the day and the hour that it happened. Because it was a dramatic experience when all of a sudden God turned their life around. And everything began to make sense. And there was life. That's what it means to be born again. Without that, there's no life. Romans uh, goes on to say, consequently, just as one trespass, that simple little thing, eating that fruit that they weren't supposed to, resulted in condemnation for all people, not for some, all. Everybody say all. All people. Also, also, one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So this mess we got into because of one guy, Adam, and his wife. And it was straightened out because of what Jesus did. Uh, in verse 19, it says, For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous. That's what Jesus did. Listen to me, people. If we are fundamentally good, then Jesus' death was for nothing. You know, oftentimes people talk about Jesus' death, you know, kind of like somebody who died in a war. It was a nice thing, you know, and, it was a, and those are great sacrifices without a doubt. But when Jesus, what he did was far beyond anything like that. God in the flesh who came here knowing that we were hopelessly lost. Listen to me. If you've never truly surrendered your heart to Christ, you're lost. That's what it means to be lost. There's nothing you can do. You can't earn it. You can't give enough money to buy it. People oftentimes say, well, gee, when I die, I hope my good outweighs my bad. You don't get this. Your good can never outweigh your bad. It's impossible. So what do I do? You come to Christ and you put your trust in him because he makes things right. That's why we trust in him. If you're still trying to outweigh your bad with some good deeds, you are self-deceived and you're headed for a very bad surprise. In 1 John, we read this. Jesus, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. What he did is an stunning thing. He goes on to say, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, that we're all fundamentally good, well, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us because his word, and we've just read part of it, makes it very clear we are not fundamentally good at all. The problem is we get into comparative goodness when we compare ourselves to other people. For example, 
Compared to some men, I am a good-looking man. <laughs> Quite the catch. Now, compared to some other men, I'm just a fat, old, bald guy. I prefer comparing against group one. All right, and people basically do this. They look at themselves and they think, well, I'm not as bad as my mother-in-law, <laughs> or, or as this person, or my neighbor. My neighbor's a bad guy. And one of the things, believe it or not, there's a kind of a sick part of this, but when we read about horrible acts that people do, and groups like ISIS and stuff, and all the terror they're doing, in a way, that's comforting to people. Because clearly, we are not so bad. Compared to those guys, we're really, really good. But that's a mistake. And the Bible says we are not to compare. Comparatively speaking, doesn't mean anything when it's compared to God. Here's an example. If you take the worst person on the face of the earth at this time, I mean the most wicked, evil, violent, nasty human being, and stick them in the deepest hole on the face of the earth, and then take the nicest, kindest, most sacrificing and good person that we have on earth and put them on top of Mount Everest, that's an amazing divide. But then if you tell them, now reach up and touch the stars, well, it doesn't matter. Why? Because from the star's perspective, it's all the same. Doesn't matter how big of a mountain you're on, you can't touch the stars. When it comes to God's goodness and righteousness and holiness, you can't begin to touch it. That's why it says we are all sinners and separated from God because of our sin. Comparative goodness is a trap you want to be careful not to get caught up into. And here's the other problem that we have as Christians. And, and I hope you hear me and understand me on this one. Generally speaking, first-generation Christians, and what I mean by that is you were the first one in your family really to be a born-again Christian. Your parents weren't born-again, your grandparents were I mean, boom, you are a born-again Christian. Usually people like that tend to be the most passionate people for the kingdom of God. And these people do not have a difficult time understanding that they were sinners. How many of you are in that category? <laughs> yeah. How many of you are all sinners? Yeah, very clear. I mean, you don't, you don't even double check that for a second. Because we know what we were doing. We know the awful things that we did. Some of you, quite frankly, still struggle to this day because of some of the bad things you did. And we got to keep encouraging. Look. You're new in Jesus. He's forgiven all of that. Because their history, they have no history to anything right. Our problem becomes with multi-generational Christianity. Second generation, third generations, and quite frankly, it seems very few seem to survive into the fourth and fifth generation. Because what happens is those kids generally are not so bad. We have many second-generation Christians here that really haven't done much of anything, comparatively speaking, bad at all as compared to some people we know. <laughs> I won't mention any names, but their initials are Mark Gunger. Okay, so uh, our kids didn't do anything like what we did. And the problem is, and then into the next in a good way, you're staying away from destructive behaviors, but then you start to look at the world through rose-colored glasses, and you think, well, people are good, 
all pretty good because I was raised in a good home and everybody's good and da da da. But they soon start, and here's the crazy thing, they soon start to take the gospel, the truths of the gospel, and twist them. They don't do it intentionally, but they don't know what they're doing. They're taking ideas of grace and forgiveness and compassion and start to use that as justification to go back to the things that the original generations got out of. And they begin to justify sexual immorality and violence and selfishness and all the greed and everything they do. Well, God wants to bless us and it doesn't matter and love conquers all and, and grace covers everything. And what they start to do is they now begin to get sucked into it, but now it's even worse because they're surrounded by a delusion that it's okay. The nice thing about first generation Christians is we don't have those delusions. We know what we did was wrong and it was never okay. Look, the answer isn't for your kids to go out there and do horrible, terrible things so they can later convert and be nice. It's just that we've got to continue to remind them that as nice as you are and as good as you've been and we've kept you from a lot of things because we'll smack you upside the head if you don't do it, you need to understand you are a sinner. Your children have got to understand if the second and the third and the fourth and sixth generations would be consistent and careful to explain that we are all hopelessly lost without God and that we need to hold to the standard of God for our salvation. If that doesn't get drilled, then this delusional cloud starts to set in. And historically speaking, we have not done well with this. Jesus talks a little bit about this in Luke, the seventh chapter. He says, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and They were reclining at the table. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Now, it doesn't really say, but we're assuming she just didn't pay her taxes. It's usually an implication that she was sexually immoral, maybe given to prostitution or something like that, but she lived a sinful life. She learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, which first is a little creepy, (laughs) If you're eating dinner, someone's behind you going, <laughs> wouldn't you stop? I mean, I don't understand. Different culture, all right? So she's weeping. Then she begins to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair. Again, ew! But from our culture, this apparently was not that unusual. In fact, we learned that later Mary, the sister of uh, Lazarus and her sister Martha, you remember? Uh, Mary before Jesus went to Jerusalem and eventually died, he, she did the same thing. She came and wept at her feet, washed her feet, his, you know, his feet with her hair and poured perfume all over and the same kind of deal. So apparently, I don't know what it was about that day, this, that act in and of itself, I don't know if it was just an act of humility and I don't know. I can't, we, you know, we're Americans, we can't get our head around this stuff, okay? But that's what they did. When she did it, nobody in the room went, what the heck is she doing? It was common enough that no one really reacted to the act. What they reacted to is who it was. Because it says in the next verse, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is and that she is a sinner. Then Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Well, tell me, teacher. He said, two people owed money to a certain money lender. 
One owed him 500 denarii, and the other owed 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, you see this woman? I came into your house. You didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil in my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Again, one of the reasons why first-generation Christians tend to be so passionate for the kingdom of God. Now, the answer here, again, isn't that our second and third generations go out and become drug addicts so they can convert later and love more. The problem is they forget that they're sinners. They don't understand that even the simplest selfish acts are as bad as shooting drugs and beating people up and stealing stuff and breaking into homes and all the kind of stuff people have done and continue to do. What we have to constantly remind ourselves is that without God, we are totally and completely lost. We are not in any way, shape or form, fundamentally good. It is a deception, it is a lie. The Bible is very clear. Without God, we are hopelessly lost. You say, Pastor, that's just an awful situation. What am I supposed to do? Well, that's where the good news comes in. That's why the Bible's, the gospel's called the good news. What's the good news? Is that no matter what mess you're in, you can be made right. You can be set free, forgiven. New life can come into you. That's what Jesus did on the cross. And now, now we have a transformation. Now we become the righteousness of God. Now we do do good things and experience good things and stuff. But it's really not us. It's God working through us. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it's not me. It's Christ who lives through me. The good that we experience is our Father moving through us and touching people's lives because we now learn about righteousness and goodness and kindness that comes from him. But apart from him, there is no goodness. Without him, we are totally and completely lost. The good news is, despite what the one man did that messed us all up, the one act that Jesus did, and set it all right. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love that when we fell as a race, you didn't just abandon us. You loved us so much that you sent your own son into the world that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus bore the sins of the world, a world that is without hope, without God, but by putting our faith in you, we can experience you. We can have our sins forgiven. We can become born again as new life enters us. And we can now walk in the joy and the peace of knowing God. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. God bless you. Have a fabulous day.